Jesus is in the midst of a very specific sermon, a bit of a private dialogue uh, recorded for us by Matthew, who was there. Jesus declares at the end of chapter 9 that the harvest is truly plentiful, but the laborers are few. And so Jesus, amongst the disciples that he had, he chose 12, and he gives them a unique commission, a specific commission to them to go into the cities of Israel and to preach the kingdom. He gives them a unique power and authority to do so. He sends them on his way. Now, before, he gives them some instruction. Now, if you're one of these 12, you're feeling uh, pretty honored that of the larger group, you get hand-selected by the Lord for such a task. And then as Jesus is giving some instruction, the weight of this particular task starts to fall fairly heavily. Jesus is honest. The harvest is plentiful, indeed. And yet there will be opposition. There's a real enemy that will oppose you. And Jesus tells these men, again, you'll have power and you have this authority and you're, you're going in, in my name. But because you're going in my name, people will hate you and you'll be persecuted. People will be angry. Again, you will be opposed. The harvest is plentiful. But the opposition is very real. We've been covering this, again, private exchange with Jesus and these 12 men. We got our, ourselves to verse 34 last Sunday, so that's where we'll pick things up. Jesus says, he says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. That happens anyway. <laughs> and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Again, what a heavy exhortation provided by Jesus. His words, not mine. He opens this section with what is really an interesting and provocative declaration. Do not think, he says, that I came to bring peace on earth, but a sword. Again, within the context of what Jesus is saying, prepping these men for ministry, prepping them for what they would face within a world opposed to the Lord. Jesus says, I'm not here to make peace. And then he mentions the sword. And within its context, I don't think Jesus is exhorting Christians to take up arms and go into battle against the world or to lead crusades against the you know, the occupiers. But the idea of the sword, especially within the context of what Jesus says regarding human relationships, Jesus does come and he brings division. Again, Jesus brings the truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And thus, if you stand for the truth, there will be the opposition of the falsehood. He didn't come to bring peace, but would bring division. Again, Paul writes about this in, in, in greater detail, discussing a spiritual battle that we are engaged in. 
that the world is hostile to the things of God. And so we shouldn't anticipate or hope for or even strive after peace with the world. Our job as Christians is not to bring peace. Now, it's true that Jesus will bring peace. He is the Prince of Peace, the Lord of Lords, and there'll be a day that he, he ushers in a kingdom of peace. But until then, there is a battle that's taking place, a battle that we're engaged in. He says, I didn't come to bring peace. There will be opposition. We're in a battle. There's an enemy. But division. Have you, have you ever noticed that it seems as though that the secular world singles out Christians for its vitriol? Have you ever noticed that, that the secular world never takes Muhammad's name in vain? You never really see that in, in pop culture, do you? Where someone stubs their toe and they says, Muhammad! No, no, no. It's the declaration, Jesus Christ. How frequently... And normal it is for our secular world to denigrate our Savior, our Lord, saying nothing of, of others. Did not come to bring peace, but division. You know, it's true that if you stand for the truth, the reason that no one attacks others is that it's a falsehood. And what does the falsehood have in common? It's all false, it's not threatened. You know, Satan only attacks those in whom he's threatened by, the people in, in whom are standing for the truth, that there's a dividing line. Man, we live in a culture that is trying to blur it all. And we didn't and are not sent to make peace. And then he brings this within the context of even human relationships, intimate ones, the relationship between fathers and, and sons and daughters and mothers There'll be divisions within family. You ever experienced that? Again, standing on truth, even in its like practical standpoint, you know, I've got a 10-year-old, a 7-year-old, and a 3-year-old. And most of the time I tell them, I did not come to bring peace. <laughs> like my job is not peace. And yes, there are divisions. I come with a, a sword. You know, because I'm going to say the truth. And then you have to make a decision. Either you're going to uh, agree with the truth or you're going to be stubborn against it. And then we will battle. Yes, you have summer reading. That has to be done by Wednesday. You don't have an option. I'm going to stand on truth and we're going to battle. But in its microcosm, there's a more macro application about everything in life. Again, we stand for the truth. And even down to our relationships. Standing for Jesus will, will, will cause division. Standing for the truth will cause division. And Jesus, he kind of lowers the boom, doesn't he? Talking about he who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. What a heavy exhortation. You know, we're very much a self-consumed people, Americans. I can't speak to other cultures or countries. I don't live there. won't presume to know, but within ours, we're self-indulged, self-consumed. The truth is we like to be our own little God. 
We like to develop our own little morality and our own basic standards and live accordingly. And yet if we accept Jesus, are you willing to lose the authority, the right, the say? Jesus is like, I'm not here for peace. You lose your life, you find me. You find your life, you hold fast, you lose me. Verse 40, he who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, surely I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. And so Jesus closes this exhortation. He closes on a bit of a positive note. And again, he said, if you go into a town and, and you're received by a noble family, cause a blessing on it. If you go and you're rejected, move on. Shake the dust off of your feet. He says, those that, that bless you will be blessed. They'll receive a prophet's reward. A righteous man's reward. And he's like, if you're blessed even with a cold cup of water, like the most basic demonstration of kindness, a cold cup of water. I, I won't overlook that. I'll bless that. So yes, you're going into a world that's hostile. But there is a harvest that's plentiful. Now, context. Context is always super important. It's one of the reasons that I, I prefer teaching verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Because it never allows you to approach a topic outside of the context in which it's established. I think a lot of pastors get into danger and get into problems when they cherry pick verses. And they're able to craft kind of their, their own message off of one idea. But then when you begin to read around the, the idea, it's like, well, that's not exactly what was being said. That's not exactly the context in which it was given. And again, when you, when you, when you cherry pick, it's just sometimes hard to know and you, you're left to certain whims. Maybe a pastor will take a passage and, you know, heaven forbid, but make a point that God wasn't making. Again, you go verse by verse, and I try to make a point that God's not making. You're like, wait a second, pastor. That's not what's being said. Read around the, the story. Read around the verse. There's a context. Contexts are important. And Matthew does a masterful, masterful job of this. When you're working your way through Mass, Matthew's gospel, yes, there is a, a, a bit of chronology to the way that things unfold and the way that he tells this story. He's presenting Jesus as the king. Not just the king of the Jews, but the king of the world. A king that came, a king that will be coming. Yes, there's chronology, but more than anything, Matthew is presenting this accounting of Jesus' life and his ministry thematically. There are themes that Matthew introduces that he builds upon and he transitions from. Now what we get to in chapter 11, and again, remember there's not chapter and verse breaks in the original. It all flows together. Matthew's, he's got an intention. So he's just declared there's a harvest that's plentiful. He's sending laborers out. He makes sure they know there will be opposition, heavy opposition. You won't always be liked. I didn't come to bring peace, a sword. There'll be a division. There are bigger things at stake. And then as Matthew is laying this out, he transitions from this, uh, this sermon Jesus gives to a 
perfect example of what he's talking about. Let's begin with verse 1. Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples, what we just finished reading, that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. So, so the context of this is that the 12 have been sent off. They're in a, they're a bit of a circuit, making their way around, doing exactly what Jesus had exhorted them to do. A divide and conquer is the strategy. Jesus is limited uh, to only being at one place at one time uh, during his earthly ministry. Um, so he commissions these men. Uh, there's now 13 going around preaching the kingdom. You have Jesus plus these 12. And we're told that as Jesus is doing this, as he's teaching, as he's preaching, kind of this twofold ministry of Jesus, teaching to expound upon the text of Scripture, to make sure that the audience understands what's being articulated, what God is communicating, preaching, then building upon that lesson and application, teaching and preaching. But we're told that when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to Jesus, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Now this is fascinating to me. And in so many ways, shocking. So the John mentioned here is John the Baptist. It's been a while since we've seen John. First introduced at the beginning of the book, uh, Matthew presents him as the forerunner, a prophet that came out of the wilderness, setting up shop there on the banks of the Jordan River, preaching a message of repentance, a repentance from sin for the Messiah was coming, the king was on the way. John coming on the, the coattails of 400 years of seeming silence from God. John, colorful character. A Levite, we know that for his father, uh, was a priest. A man raised with religious education, a smart man, a learned man, but a wild man. Matthew, again introducing him, presents this, this gnarly preacher, this evangelist, this prophet, coming out of the wilderness, setting up shop on the side of the road, so to speak, wearing camel's hair, eating wild locusts, a hippie. But he garners everyone's attention. A real work in and of itself. People coming from all over, again, to Bethabara, out by the Jordan to hear John preach, and then to be baptized as, a, as an active response of this attitude of repentance. John had a powerful ministry, an important ministry, even got the attention of the, the religious establishment of Jerusalem that would come down, the Pharisees, the scribes, to hear what John had to say, even some of them being moved by it. John made an impact, a powerful impact. And then as he even prophesied, indeed, Jesus comes from the Galilee, and he comes down to John, who happened to be his cousin. They were familiar with each other. They knew one another. And John makes just a real radical declaration. There's several interesting exchanges that occur. Jesus, most notably, walks into the water to be baptized by John. And John says, no, it can't be. I am not worthy 
even to loose your sandal straps. And you come to be baptized by me. No, no, you need to baptize me. And Jesus says, no, this needs to be done to be fulfilled. And John baptizes him, and there's this radical scene where he comes out of the water. And there's a voice that's declared from heaven, this is my beloved son and whom I am well pleased. And then the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus as a dove, this visible demonstration. Oh, to have been there, to see the scene. John baptizing Jesus. And then Jesus begins to, to baptize at the Jordan as well. And we have these kind of dueling ministries that are working kind of together. We don't know how long that, that lasts. But in the course of time, Jesus' popularity begins to even supersede that of John's. The disciples are, you know, a little tit for tat. But what is John's perspective? John declares to his followers, you go follow him. I must decrease and he must increase. John gets it. He understands who Jesus is. He sees Jesus and he declares to his followers, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John knew who Jesus was. John knew Jesus was the King. John knew Jesus was the Messiah. John knew he was the fulfillment of all of this Old Testament prophecy. Jesus. So John has no problems kind of slipping back behind stage, taking on a lesser role. Now, in the process of this, and we're not told this by Matthew, but it's recorded for us in other places, that John's ministry continued. We're introduced to some of his disciples here, two of them. But he ends up with this, this exchange with Herod. Herod comes to see John. And John the Baptist was a no-nonsense kind of guy. You see, Herod had married his sister-in-law, his brother Philip's wife, a scandal of epic proportions. Everyone knew it was wrong. It went against the law of God. But no one's going to say anything to Herod. I mean, Herod ruled with an iron fist. You didn't cross Herod but John. Again, Jesus says, I didn't come to make peace with the world. We stand for truth. And sometimes that provides a division. And then as a result, opposition. And John presents for us a greater illustration of this. He speaks out against the immorality of the king, the sin of Herod and Herodias. Disgusting behavior, unbecoming. And Herod doesn't like being told that he's in the wrong by some squirrely-looking prophet down by the river. And so what happens? Well, John gets arrested. We're not told specifically where he's held. It's in proximity to the seats of power. But John is thrown into prison, which you've got to imagine was just a horrible, horrible plight for a man like John. A man that's used to living out under the stars, out in the wilderness. You know, John's a camper. You know, he likes getting his feet dirty and his hands grimy and bathing in the river to be placed into a cell. And you can imagine, you can reason that you're John. 
And here you are, you've proclaimed Jesus, you spoke out against power, you know the king is here, he's gonna be doing his thing. Sure, you get arrested, you get thrown into the dungeon, but that's okay, because you know that the Messiah is here, the Christ is here. Now, the conventional understanding of the Messiah was that he would lead a revolution, that he would usher in a kingdom, that he would overthrow the occupiers, liberate Israel from, from the Rome, Roman grasp. So you're a giant, you're like, oh, that's a fine. I'm in prison, no big deal. The king is here, and it's all gonna go down. And I'm his man. And then one week turns into two. Two weeks turns into a month. One month turns into a quarter. By this point, John has roughly been in prison somewhere between, and scholars are, are kind of divided, somewhere at, between 10 months and a year he's been in prison. And at what point in the dungeon does John start thinking, in any day, Jesus, you know, any time, I know who you are, I declared it so, I believe. But after time, was I wrong? And so John, he, he gets two of his disciples. There's no Facebook, there's no Twitter, there's no internet reading. He doesn't have a newspaper. He doesn't have the you know, cable TV. He doesn't know what's happening. So he, he petitions two of his disciples, and he sends them to Jesus with a question. Look at it again. He wants to know, are you the coming one? Or do we look for another? John. I mean, what's shocking about this is this statement within the context of the other statements of John the Baptist that are so sure and confident and determined. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There's no doubts. There's no second guessing. John is as confident as you can be in the Messiahship of Jesus. He's sure. But is he? You see, John's been in prison. And Jesus hasn't come to his rescue. And now he's wanting to know, did I get it wrong? Are you the coming one or, or should we be looking for another? And what in, in its essence is he saying? Like, how do you get to this point if you're John the Baptist? Well, I would say that is the consequence of unfulfilled expectations. John had an expectation. John believed Jesus would do something in a certain way, and that now wasn't happening. Jesus wasn't leading a revolution. People weren't taking up arms. Rome was still very much in power. In fact, he's very much in prison for what? For speaking truth to power for being noble, for being a prophet, for, for, for speaking the truth. John was a righteous man, being treated unfairly, and he's thinking to himself, Jesus, where are you? You're not doing what I an anticipated you to do. You're not doing what I hoped you would do. You're not doing what I want you to do. And then he doubts. Now, no show of hands. 
But have you ever been in a similar situation? Okay, it's different than John. But have you ever been in a dark place? And you're grappling with this idea of, I believe this is who Jesus is. But he's not doing what I'm expecting him to be doing in my situation. I have an unfulfilled expectation. Jesus, you're supposed to be working. It should have happened. It's supposed to be now. And you sin and you cry and you pray. Are you really who you say you are? Because you're not doing, you're not working like I thought you would. Have you ever encountered a season where you expected God to do A and it didn't happen? Well, God, I came out of the world. I've been walking with you. And I just want a spouse. You said you'd provide for my needs, and that you would take care of me. You know the, the number of the hairs on my head. But I've been walking with you, and I've remained pure and chaste. But I'm still lonely and single. I thought I'd get saved, I'd get baptized, and like Nick, I'd have a wife. <laughs> but here I am, still single. I expected you to do something. Now I'm wrestling with, well, you didn't. Or how about this? Lord Jesus, I know you're the great physician, and, and I know you heal. And man, I've got all the evidence in the world that you're good. I mean, you healed my lungs pretty miraculously, but you know, you could have, I don't know, my arms, did you miss those? You're healing everything else. Why the pool noodles, Jesus? <laughs> An unfulfilled expectation. And then you start thinking, Lord, are you really the coming one? What does that look like in your life? The Lord calls you to start a business to bring him glory. You're like, Lord, I'm going to use this business, and, and I'm, going to, I'm going to take the funds that I make, and I'm going to, I'm going to support your ministry, missionaries, and, and the church. And you have a vision, and, and you, you've got tenacity, and you just dive into it. And then it falls apart. And it doesn't work out exactly like you thought it would. And then you think, are you really who you say you are? Now, now, what's the problem? The problem is that John here has an expectation of what he wants Jesus to be doing. Jesus isn't doing what he wanted him to be doing, so now he begins to doubt. So how does Jesus answer him? <laughs> Look at verse 4. So Jesus answered, if you want to know how Jesus answered, you, it's a good line to find Jesus answered. And said to them, go and tell John these things, which you hear and see, that the blind see and the lame walk and lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. 
You know what Jesus doesn't do? Answer, <laughs> answer the question. Are you the coming one or do we look for another? You know what? You go tell John that this is what you hear, this is what you see, this is what I'm doing. Don't get wrapped up, John, in what I'm not doing, but look at what I am doing. The perfect remedy for an unfulfilled expectation. You know, we get so wrapped up, again, in what we want Jesus to be doing, as opposed to sometimes taking a step back and saying, okay, Lord, you're God, I'm not. You're sovereign, I ain't. You're loving, I try. You're not working like I want you to work or would have expected you to work or hoped that you worked, but how are you working? Instead of allowing the unfulfilled expectation to bring in doubt, Jesus answers the doubt by pointing to what he's doing. Don't get distracted on that. I do what I do. I mean, that's kind of what Jesus is saying, isn't he? He's like, John, you are expecting this. I'm doing that. There's your answer. I wear the name tag God, and, and you don't have that. And my plan isn't always what yours is. Do you know that about Jesus? That he has a will that isn't always yours? Now, it's great when, when our will aligns with his. Kind of the essence of what we should be praying. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I mean, ultimately, we want to align ourselves with the will of God, and we want our will to align with that will. But what happens when they don't? Do you doubt, or do you look at his will and believe it's perfect? For me, as, as your pastor, the biggest struggle I've had in all of this, the trial that I've gone through, has been these arms. It's so deeply frustrating to be able to talk and to walk and to, and, and to just not be able to use your hands. To not be able to play the guitar, to not be able to type out notes for a Bible study, to not be able to play catch with my kids in the backyard. It's brutal. And, and the struggle is, our, Lord, you're not doing what I'm wanting you to do. Why? And then you have to take a step back and say, but you are working. So why? Why are you doing this? Is it to slow me down? Probably. Is it for me to let go? I can't even hold on. Sure. <laughs> or is it just so that you stay in a trial and have a good attitude and bring me glory? And there's no other reason than that. What about you? John, are you, are you, he doubts. That's shocking. But it's not that shocking when you've been in the prison and you're grappling with Jesus not doing what you thought he would do. I'm reminded 
of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Three interesting characters, their stories recorded for us in Daniel, contemporaries of the prophet. And they're Jewish men who've been taken into exile, captives to Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar goes on this ego trip, builds this statue, commands everybody to bow down and worship it. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are like, nope, look, we're not doing that. A lot of things we'll do, we're not doing that. We'll eat your, we'll you know, dress your way, we'll speak your language, whatever. But when it comes to worshiping God, that we're drawing that line. And so Nebuchadnezzar is very upset about it. And so he gets this furnace and he has it heated up seven times. It's so hot that even the soldiers that would cast someone into it, get, they perish. And so, you know, Nebuchadnezzar brings Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these three amigos, brings them to this furnace and is like, Last chance, fellas, bow down, worship, or you're going in. And they make this amazing statement. They're like, if the Lord delivers us, great. If we perish, we won't bow down and worship. You know what they do? They don't place Jesus into a box. They don't approach the trial with some expectation of how they believe God should intervene. Now, worked out well, for they're thrown into the fiery furnace, and Jesus appears. Only thing that gets burned off were the ropes that were binding. God, we'd like you to work this way. But you know what? I'm going to have a little humility here and say that I don't, I don't know what your full will is. And so instead of getting bogged down by having an unfulfilled expectation, I'm just... I'm just going to worship you and not have an expectation. And just, I know you love me. And I know you got good things for me. And I know your thoughts are not evil, but they're of a future and they're a hope. And it might not play out like I would want, but I know it plays out perfectly according to your will. John, are you the coming one? Or should we look for another? And then what's, what's very cool we're told that as they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John. And this is an awesome thing about John, which we'll get to next Sunday. Awesome thing. John's the greatest of all the prophets. No one's ever been born of, man, of, of a woman that's greater than he. No one's been ever born of a woman or aside from a woman. I mean, it's great prophet, greatest of, he's one prophet that the prophets prophesied about. He was my four, he says all these awesome things about John. And John never heard them because they departed and Jesus began to say. You know, the thing you've got to remember, and we'll unpack this more next week, but even in the midst of unfulfilled expectation, don't ever, ever doubt how much he loves you. He doesn't rebuke John. He says these wonderful things. And he gives them this exhortation, verse 6. We'll look at it and close with this. Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. The idea of what Jesus is articulating here, it would be easy to read it because of the way it's presented into the English, is that you know, d don't be offended about Jesus. You know, there's a blessing. You know, if the world hates Jesus, you don't be offended about Jesus. 
That's not exactly what he's saying here. Because again, the context matters. He's saying this to John, who's struggling with an unfulfilled expectation. He's being reminded of what Jesus is doing, these wonderful things. The idea of offense here, scandali. It's the, wor- the word we get scandalous from. It was the part of a trap that had the bait. And what is he, what is he saying? He's saying, don't be offended when I work a way that you didn't want or expect. That's heavy, isn't it? Because what happens? Sometimes we get offended and we get upset. Jesus, the exhortation, blessed, happy, content, fulfilled, satisfied is the person who allows me to work how I want to work and rolls with it and accepts it and believes it and holds fast to it. I think that there's a lot of things within this that have unique application to your life. Again, one of the things that often irks me is when half a sermon is a pastor fishing for illustrations of application, trying to nail it down to your situation. I'm not going to do that. I think the text says what it says. The application's clear and has a unique application and relevance to each of us. I thought you would do this. Okay, he didn't. Now what? Are you offended? So, Father, Lord, we just...